Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for part two of The Armor of God. Amen. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I know something about you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I mean an active follower of Jesus, you are in a fight. The day that you committed your life to Christ was the day that you signed, whether you knew it or not, whether you like it or not, the day you committed your life to Christ was the day that you signed on the dotted line to go to war. Not a physical war on a physical battlefield, but a spiritual war on a spiritual battlefield. And so when a soldier is about to go to war, it's very important that that soldier knows a lot about two different things. He needs to know, as we said last week, a lot about his enemy, and he needs to know a lot about his armor. So last week, we spent the whole time talking about our enemy, Lucifer, a fallen angel, an angel who came to the earth and he's bent on our destruction, leading a third of the angels who fell with him, who rebelled and fell with him, spiritual hosts of darkness and wicked places and in the heavenly realm, as Paul talks about in verse 12. This is our unseen enemy, and he hates us. He's coming against us, and our only hope, as I said in my prayer, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. This week, we're going to talk about our armor, the armor that the Lord gives us in order to be successful, effective in our fight against the devil and his angels. Now, before we get to the six pieces of armor, I want to share some really good news with everybody today. So if you're taking notes, check this out. Christians do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Now, that's important to know right in the beginning of this armor of God message. You've got to understand this, okay? Because even though we have a formidable foe, we have a defeated foe. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has already defeated the devil, right? By dying on the cross, by rising from the grave, Jesus fulfilled something, a prophecy. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to go there briefly. But he fulfilled the prophecy found way back in Genesis chapter 3. You remember the fall of man. We talked about that last week. You remember Eve was deceived by the serpent. The serpent was a tool of Satan in order to bring down, if, this, if the enemy can't touch God, he's going to go after those of us who love God. And so he goes after the first couple, and Eve is deceived. Adam deliberately disobeys. Both of them eat the forbidden fruit. It's called the fall of man. And wherever there's sin, hey, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you, you shall also reap. And so there was consequences. There was consequences for the serpent, the tool of Satan, to lie and deceive. There was consequences for Eve, and there was consequences for Adam. I want to look at the consequences for Satan, and then look at the prophecy the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And so this 
serpent used to be the most beautiful and subtle of creatures, and he is transformed into a loathsome reptile. How many of you guys love snakes? Let me just see your hand. I bet you there's only one or two. Yes, there are a few. <laughs> a few, okay? But the vast majority of us hate snakes, right? And so that was the curse of the, t the, the tool of Satan, the snake, was this beautiful creature, and now he's this loathsome serpent. Verse 15, but now the Lord's done talking to the snake, now he's talking to Satan. And he says to Satan in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and, listen to this, her seed. Okay, there's your first prophecy in the Bible concerning the coming of a Messiah someday, the coming of a Savior. He's called her seed. He, that's the Messiah, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so even though the serpent would strike the heel of the Messiah someday, the Messiah would crush the head of the snake. And so that's the good news of the prophecy from Genesis 3.15. And listen to this. At the cross, the serpent struck the heel of, of, of the Messiah, Jesus. But at the resurrection, Jesus absolutely crushed the head of the serpent. The strike on Jesus' heel turned out not to be a fatal flow. He got up and walked victoriously out of that grave. But the crushing of the head of the serpent will absolutely be a fatal flow, a, a, a fatal blow, because we know in the book of Revelation that one day Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So never forget in this whole thing of spiritual warfare that we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. And the epic war, the cosmic war between good and evil has already been won by our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we know that, right? It's okay, by the way, to thank Jesus for winning the war. We can do that as a church, right? It's good news. But how many of you know that when you cut off the head of a snake, his tail still swishes. Ever seen that before? Kind of freaks me out whenever I see that. I remember driving down the road one time and apparently the snake had its head run over and its tail was freaking out on the street as I drove by. And so though the head of the enemy has been crushed, his tail still swishes. And so we gotta be ready. And the, the way that we get ready is we put on the whole armor of God. So look now at verse 13. Okay, because in verse 12 we have these, this unseen enemy that's coming against us and our families and our marriages and our kids and our church, okay? Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to, what's the word? Stand, not run. As I said last week, too many Christians are running back here way off the front lines because they know that if they really get serious in their walk with Jesus Christ and go up to the front lines, that's where the bullets fly. They don't want to stand. They want to run. That's what you call a coward. And as soldiers of the Lord, there's no room for cowards. Right? 
We got to stand. So he says, for verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The first piece of armor that Paul wrote about, of course, is the belt of truth. A Roman soldier would wear a belt around his waist, and he would have the extra protection, you guys see that? Covering his loins. Old English word, you're thinking, what's a loin, right? Well, KJV, King James Version, Ephesians 6.14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. So in ancient Jewish thought, the loins were the seat of a person's emotions. The loins were the seat of a person's feelings. So when Paul said, gird your loins with truth, I believe he was saying, gird your emotions, gird your feelings with truth. In other words, make sure that your emotions and your feelings are protected, secured, dominated by God's truth. Now, now here's the truth, right? As humans, we're emotional people. And sometimes we let our emotions rule over us. And we have to be careful because if we're not careful, we can allow our feelings, listen, look at this, we can allow our feelings to cover the truth instead of the truth covering our feelings. If we're not careful, we can allow our emotions to gird, cover, dominate God's truth instead of the other way around. And so we can't allow our emotions to rule over us. Have you ever made a decision based on your feelings? And then later on you're like, why did I do that? I remember way back in the early 90s, I was so gung-ho to be a pastor. You know, a lot of pastors I hear, they go kicking and screaming into the ministry. I had a lot of ambition, which is a reason why I should not have gone into the ministry when I was in my 20s. And I really wanted to go into ministry, and so I sent these resumes to different places around the country, to different churches, asking to be their pastor, at least for an interview. I got one, one phone interview, but everyone said no. Okay, this is where everyone just says, aw, right? Okay. <laughs> Kidding. Kidding. And so finally, I got the call from a church that was looking for a pastor, an interim pastor. And so, man, I was so excited. Okay, there's an emotion. I got in my car. I drove down to that little church way down in South Florida. I pulled into the parking lot. There's two deacons standing there and the Lord says so clearly in my heart no and five minutes later I was saying yes (laughs) why excitement why ambition all the wrong reasons I was too gung-ho I was so green wasn't ready and you know what the next six months in my life at that church as their interim pastor was some of the worst months in my life and in my wife Stacy's life and our baby at that time, daughter Megan's life. Why? I made a decision out of feelings. And so the enemy would love for you to make a decision while you're emotional, right? When you're excited, when you're overcome with fear. Hey, if you're afraid, don't make a decision while you're afraid. It's gonna be a bad decision. Because God, like I said last week, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. 
when you're overcome with anger. How many people are sitting in prison right now because they, they made a decision while they were angry? When you're overcome with lust, how many horrible decisions have been made because people make a decision when they're overcome with lust? When you're overcome with ambition, when you're overcome with jealousy, here's some really good advice said by our, uh, said by our former uh, care pastor, pa uh, Pastor Teddy Sanders, who pastors now in um, Fort Pierce. But Teddy used to always say, let emotions subside and then decide. Really good advice. Let emotions subside, weaken, get lower, and then make your decision. And while you're letting your emotions uh, subside and become weak and lower, then put on the belt of God's truth and let God's truth dominate your feelings instead of allowing your feelings to dominate God's truth. Make decisions based on this book, not your feelings. Now, if you feel like you've got a pretty good understanding now of the belt of truth, say amen. Man, you guys are doing a good job. I got one amen, I think, in first service. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The second piece of armor that Paul wrote about is the breastplate of righteousness. And so a Roman soldier would put on this sleeveless breastplate. It was usually made out of metal. Sometimes it was made out of really tough leather. And the breastplate was there in order to protect that soldier from an enemy's dagger. <laughs> In close hand-to-hand -hand combat, the enemy would try to stab you in one of your vital organs. And so, as a soldier, you would have this breastplate of righteousness. So what in the world does that metaphor mean? What is Paul trying to say to the church? Well, there's two types of righteousness. This is so good. I'm going to teach some doctrine this morning. And you got to get this, right? Because... Um, they continued steadfastly in Acts 2.42 in the Apostles' Doctrine. Okay, here's some Apostles' Doctrine. There's two types of righteousness that you and I have to understand. There is positional righteousness and there is practical righteousness. Positional righteousness has to do with your position, your standing before God as a born-again believer. Practical righteousness has to do with your practice or your lifestyle before God the Lord. And so when it comes to positional righteousness, what is our position before a holy God? And I'm just going to give you one word. The word is righteous. I don't know if you ever knew that about yourself, but the day that you turn from your sins and you put your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, the day that you put your faith in Christ, God said over you, he declared you righteous. It's called justification. At that point, it was just as if you never sinned. This is such good news, right? And here's what we got to understand as a church. Jesus did not just die for our sins. G Jesus did not just die in our place. Jesus lived in our place. Now, you rarely ever hear this in churches anymore. Is it a big deal that Jesus died in our place? Yes, but it, it is as, just as big of a deal that Jesus lived in our place, that Jesus lived for us. 
In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ kept the Ten Commandments because you and I could not. The Lord Jesus Christ not only kept the Big Ten, but he kept all 613 commands of the Torah because you and I could never do that. And the good news of Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, and someday we will teach the book of Romans. We're getting there. But the good news of Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 is simply this, that when you put your faith, your trust, your confidence in Christ for this life and the next, he imputes his perfect record into your account. That's the good news. It's called imputed righteousness. What in the world is that? When you put your faith in Christ, his perfect life record is imputed, given to you. And now when the, when the father looks down at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son's righteousness. Now when the father looks down at you and I, he doesn't see our failed life. He sees his son's perfect life. You say, that's hard to believe. Well, it's true. It's the only chance we got before a holy God. You try to stand before an uncreated, holy, awesome God in your self-righteousness. See what happens. No, it's not our self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And that's the only way we can stand before a holy God and walk into the new Jerusalem someday. Positional righteousness. God's grace. God's love. God's initiation of the relationship. Salvation, ladies and gentlemen, is of the Lord. Your salvation is not because of what you have, is not because of what you do, it's because of what Christ has done. You gotta get that so you have some peace in your life. And I'm just wondering, doesn't the grace of God make you want to live for God? But whenever I preach like this, inevitably there's always people who say, yeah, but when you preach like that, you know, you put your faith in Christ, and all of a sudden, you're declared righteous before God forever. And so that's going to give license to people to live wild, sinful lives. I disagree totally. I think, you know what I think? I think that kind of love, that kind of grace from the Lord motivates people to live for the Lord. Absolutely. This is why I go to church, not just because I'm a pastor. I go to church not to be saved, but because I'm saved, right? This is why I go to a life group, not, be, not to be saved, but because I'm saved, and I love it. This is why I tithe. My wife and I have tithed for years, and we give above the tithe to areas that the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart. Why? To be saved? To earn God's favor? No, because we're already saved, and we're thanking God for his love and grace in our lives. This is true Christianity, right? So man, that leads us to our second type of righteousness and it's practical righteousness. Follow me here. When you turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. You say, what's he doing in there? <laughs> He's changing you from the inside out. Little by little, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, He's conforming you into the image of Christ. It's so cool. I, I've been doing this now here for 11 years. And some of you guys have been with me 8, 9, 10 years. And you know what? The person that I see now 
is nothing like the person who walked into this church nine, 10 years ago. You're more like Jesus. You smell more like Jesus. You're acting more like Jesus. You're talking more like Jesus. You know why? The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. It's called practical righteousness. And you know what? I understand that by grace you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we often stop right in verse 9, and we don't go to verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says that you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. In other words, before God created the universe, he knew you. He knew your name. And he created you for good works. And he's, he's, his Holy Spirit is working that out of you. It's called practical righteousness. You say, well, I thought all our righteousness was like filthy rags. You got your theology all messed up. Your righteousness before Christ, where you're trying to earn your way to heaven, that's filthy rags. Literally a woman's menstrual cycle cloth. That's what God's word literally says. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven without Christ, God looks at your righteousness like a filthy rag. But let me tell you something. When you come to Christ and you're clothed in his righteousness, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and begins to change you from the inside out. And you're doing the works that God foreordained for you since the creation of, of the world as those righteous works come out. Don't you dare call those filthy rags. No, those works are for the glory of God. And God loves it, and God is pleased when he sees that coming out of our lives. Positional righteousness, practical righteousness. When that's happening in our lives, the enemy has a really hard time <laughs> defeating us. Look at verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of, what's the last word in verse 15? Peace. The third piece of armor Paul wrote about was the shoes of peace. A Roman soldier wore sturdy sandals. The reason he wore sturdy sandals was to stabilize himself in battle. So these sandals had leather straps that would go around the soldier's legs, but I really want to focus in on the bottom of the sandals. On the bottom of a Roman soldier's sandals were hobnails. The hobnails acted like cleats. They gave the, Ro the Roman soldier traction and helped stabilize him in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so, once again, what in the world did Paul mean by this metaphor? Well, what stabilizes us in the battles of life? It's that last word that I had you all say. Go ahead and say it peace. God's peace. I've been walking with the Lord now since May of 1984. May of 1984 is when Jesus became real to me. And in those years, however long that's been, I've been through some really difficult trials, some difficult battles. I mean, some stuff that just shakes you to the core. And you know what? During those times when I go through those battles, there's nothing like going out for a prayer walk, just me and the Lord, and sensing God's peace. I mean, all hell is breaking loose. People are mad, right? Junk is happening. Emails are being written, whatever. 
and you go out and you're walking with the Lord and you have peace, what does that do? It stabilizes you in the battles of life. In the 19th century, um, there was an American lawyer, prominent American lawyer. His name was Horatio Spafford. He knew all about the battles of life. I, mean, I haven't seen anything like this guy has seen. First, his son dies. Now, can you imagine? Some of you can. But everybody knows that children are supposed to bury their parents, not the other way around. Then after that, the great Chicago fire happens. And Horatio Spafford, the American lawyer, he loses all of his real estate investments, destroyed, gone. After that, his wife and four daughters are on a trip across the Atlantic. And as they're in, um, in route, another ship accidentally broadsides them. And there's this horrific accident, and 226 people died. Horatio Spafford got a telegram from his wife, had two words on it, saved alone. His wife survived, but his four daughters, ages 2 through 11, all perished at sea. What would you do? What would I do? Well, it drove Horatio Spafford to his knees, and he penned a hymn. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. You know what stabilized Horatio Spafford through the battles of life? God's peace. And it'll stabilize you as well during the difficult times of your life. But where does peace come from? Look at Philippians chapter four. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything. But in everything by, what's the word? And supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and help me out, the peace of God. There it is, prayer produces peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so just like the sturdy sandals with the hobnails stabilized the Roman soldier during hand-to-hand -hand combat, if you will take the time to pray, and I mean really pray, I'm not saying like a little two-liner. I'm saying get alone with the Lord and pour out your heart in prayer and you will, the promise of God of Philippians 4, 6, and 7, you will experience God's peace and it will stabilize you as well look at verse 16 now we're going to move to the fourth piece of armor he says above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one so the fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith the shield of faith was about two and a half feet wide and about four and a half feet tall. It was hardwood covered in leather, treated leather, in order to quench the flaming arrows of the enemy. So if you were a soldier, and I want you guys to just kind of picture yourselves as a first century Roman soldier, okay? So there you are. If you're a soldier, 
and you're standing in line, you're standing with your brothers in arms, and you all have the shield of faith. And what are you doing? You are marching toward the enemy. You're not running away. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I can't be a part of this, right? No. Heaven doesn't know a coward. You're marching toward the enemy. And as you're marching toward the enemy with the shield of faith, you got your brother on the right, you got your brother on the left, and as you're marching out, the enemy, all of a sudden, you know what they do, because you saw, probably saw a gladiator, they light the tips of their arrows and fire, and hundreds of them simultaneously shoot those flaming arrows. The, imagine the sky filled with flaming arrows, and they're coming at you. So what do you do? Well, at just the right moment, at the voice of your commander, you interlock your shield with the shield of your brother on the right, the shield with your brother on the left, and all together, simultaneously, you all crouch down. Hey, above all, take the shield of faith so that you may extinguish the flaming arrows of the wicked one. And all of a sudden, can you imagine? Right? But you're still alive. Why? The shield of faith. Now, just like the enemy would shoot their flaming arrows at the advancing Roman, Roman army, so today the enemy shoots his arrows at the advancing army of the church. Are you part of the church? Amen or no? Just, just let me know, right? Then it's not if he shoots arrows at you, it's when. It's when. But do you have the shield of faith? Are you ready? You see, the only chance that you and I have for survival is if we interlock our shield of faith with the shield of faith of our brothers and sisters in environments of faith. In other words, check out Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now in the context, because I read the verses before and I read the verses after, Paul's talking about saving faith there. And so, hey, if you really want to get to know Jesus, if you want to be saved, you want God to declare you righteous, don't repeat a little poem after some preacher and think you have fire insurance and then go on living your life however you want to live it. I said the prayer. How many times have I heard that? I said the prayer, still living with my boyfriend or girlfriend, still getting drunk on the weekends, still pop it in church maybe once a month because my wife drags me. But I said the prayer. Uh, I think you may, may, maybe need to go back and say it again or something. But if you really want to get to know Jesus, here, well, here's what you do. You get into the book of John and you read it. Just you and the Lord alone. And you get to know the Jesus of the gospel of John in all his glory and all his deity. And you submit your life to that Jesus. You submit to the lordship of the Jesus of the gospel of John. And what will happen as you're reading the gospel of John, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And get to know the Lord and let his Holy Spirit come inside of you. And then understand what we mean by, I, I can't believe, man, this, the presence of God during worship this morning was amazing. And you're thinking, what are those people talking about? Does Jesus live in you? 
Do you really know the Lord? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I also believe it can be applied not just to saving faith, but to living faith. You see, it's in environments of faith that are, I'm sorry, yes, environments of faith that our faith is built up. In other words, every time you and I walk into a Sunday morning service, what are we doing? In essence, we're locking our shield with the shield of our brothers and sisters on the right and left. And what are we doing? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We are together extinguishing the flaming arrows of the enemy. Every time you go to a life group, what are you doing in essence? You're interlocking your shield of faith with the shields of your brothers and sisters, right? In an environment of faith. It's an environment where the word of God is read, taught, heard, discussed. And what are you doing? You're, you're, you're together quenching the flaming arrows of the enemy. I'm telling you what, if you make a decision, I'm not gonna go to church anymore, or I'm not gonna go to a life group. It's just like a Roman soldier taking off all his armor, throwing down his shield of faith, and walking out in the middle of the battlefield while hundreds of flaming arrows are coming at him. And so put on the armor of God. And really, this is no joke, because you and I are in a war. We're not just sheep, we're soldiers. You really do have an enemy. He's right there in verse 12. He really wants to kill you and your marriage. And as I said before, I get so tired of hearing another marriage split up. Another wayward son is off following the world, the flesh, and the devil. Another home is broken. Another person commits adultery. Another person is in prison. And you know what? We can reverse that. We are the advancing army of the church, right? So what do we do? We get together under the authority of God's word and you are slowly but surely, you're growing in your faith with your brothers and sisters, putting up the shield of faith and you're becoming more like Christ. And what happens? Marriages are being healed. Homes are being uh, bettered. Kids are, are being raised in the nurtured admonition of the Lord. Adult kids are following Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can accomplish that here in this church if we will continue to be committed to the environments of faith. Sunday morning service, life groups, another Sunday morning service, another life group, another Sunday morning service, another life group. Every morning with the word of God opened, growing in the Lord. Look at verse 17. By the way, if you want a verse for everything I just said, it's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And so we have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shoes of peace. We have the shield of faith. And now verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation. That's the fifth piece of armor. The helmet of salvation. I'm wondering how many of you guys or ladies like to watch football in season on Sunday afternoons? Okay, few of us. Don't you love it? Doesn't it make you crack up when you're watching a football game and a guy gets upset at an opposing player and he takes off his helmet and he's ready to fight? Whenever I see that, it cracks me up. And, you know, I, I invariably think, hey, man, you really should put that helmet back on before the fight starts. Because all you need is some big 250-pound dude with his helmet on to do that, and lights are out. 
right? If a Roman soldier was dumb enough to go out into battle with his helmet off, he knows he's losing his head with an enemy's broadsword. So you and I are in a war. We really are soldiers. We really are part of the advancing army of the church. We really do have an enemy. So we should keep our helmets on as well. But what is the helmet of salvation? I think Paul defines it right here in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the, help me out, the hope of salvation. Now, we in our modern day vernacular have messed up the word hope. When we think of hope, we think of hope so hope. Kind of like, you know, I hope this happens, but it may not happen. So all we can do is hope for the best. I want to share with you that in the first century when the New Testament was written, that was not the idea for hope at all. Whenever you see the word hope in the New Testament, it's a sure reality. An absolute, 100% sure reality. And so when Paul said, put on the helmet, which is the hope of salvation, he meant that our salvation as born-again believers is a 100% fact. Now you got to get this. Because so many Christians struggle with doubting their salvation. So I'll say it again. The hope of salvation is the sure hope of your salvation. It's not hope so, I hope I make it to heaven. No, you will make it to heaven. Because it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has already done. And you say, yeah, but what if I lose it? You can't lose it. If you're a born-again Christian, you can't become unborn again. And just to make sure Paul knew that we would have these questions, look at the rest of the verse. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain what? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not just a promise that he's going to snatch the church out before the hour of trial is going to come upon the whole world. Even more than that, he's going to save us from his holy wrath against unforgiven sinners someday. Why? Because you're righteous. You're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And you, are you happy that God has not appointed you to wrath? Right? Isn't that good news? You will obtain salvation. Why? Because of your faith in Christ. So stop worrying about it. But the number one tactic of the enemy is he takes a sword and he tries to take off your head. Wow. By causing you to doubt your salvation. You know why he does that? Because if you're always like, oh, I hope I'm saved. I don't know. But what if I die? And what if I go to hell? What if I wake up in hell? It's going to be horrible. Right? What is the enemy doing to you? He's keeping you under his thumb, having you obsess about where you're going to spend eternity. And as long as you're obsessed by that, you cannot victoriously live for Jesus Christ. When I was first saved in May of 1984, I had a dramatic salvation experience, but I still doubted for six months. I wasn't grounded in the Word of God. I went to this seminar in downtown Tampa. The pastor talked about the assurance of your salvation. He gave tons of verses from the Word of God. And so what I did on the authority of God's Word is I drew a picture of a sign. I wrote the date. I 
made sure my faith was in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And from that day, I still have the picture in my library, from that day in 1984 till now, I have never once doubted my salvation. Why? Because you're so good? No, because Jesus is so good. So put your faith in the sure hope of the helmet of salvation. The promises of God. I'm just going to give you one before we move on to the last piece of armor. Here's one of my favorite promises of God that you could take to the bank. It's John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. Listen to Jesus. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them from my hand and so that's a promise from Jesus either he's a liar or he's a promise keeper if you believe Jesus is true to his word nail that down move on and serve the Lord here's your last piece of armor the sixth piece in the last part of verse 17 he says and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. A Roman soldier had two swords for battle. He had a large broadsword, which we already talked about, and he had a small machaira in the Greek, a dagger, about 12 uh, to 18 inches long. And it was a precision we weapon. Again, when we talked about the breastplate of righteousness, when a Roman soldier in the first century got into hand-to-hand -hand combat, He'd put down the big shield of faith, and now it's, it's like it's time to go with one guy, right? And so they're going at it, and he's got his dagger. What is he doing with his dagger? He's trying to stab the vital organs of his enemy. And so when Paul says in verse 17, talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the Greek, it's the machaira. It's not the big, large sword. It's the small 12 to 18-inch dagger. Now, Jesus used the dagger. In Luke chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. I'll just briefly tell you the story. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus met Satan in the wilderness. You guys remember? 40 days, 40 nights, he fasts. And the enemy comes to him. Now, when the enemy came to Jesus, how many of you guys know that Jesus is the uncreated, eternal Sovereign Son of God. You know that, right? Okay, so he could have picked that joker up by the scruff of his neck and throw through him into the lake of fire forever if he wanted to. But he was a human. Jesus was a human as much as he was God. So he wanted as to be an example for all of you gathered at Calvary Poor St. Lucie on this Sunday morning. He wanted to show you how to engage in spiritual warfare. You and I can't do that. <laughs> We don't bring a railing accusation against the enemy. We say, the Lord rebuke you, right? We don't mess around with that. We lean on the Lord. So what did the Lord do? Well, Satan knows Jesus is hungry. He says, see that stone right there? If you're the son of God, turn that stone into a piece of bread. And what did Jesus do? What was the temptation? The temptation was, use your powers as the son of God to selfishly satisfy yourself. Isn't it cool that Jesus never performed a miracle for himself? He's all about others. 
And so what did Jesus do? He pulls out the Machaira. He uses the precision weapon. He uses a specific verse to counter a specific temptation. He quotes literally from Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the enemy literally goes, ah, right? In the spirit realm, and falls back. How, how many of you guys know that the, that the devil is relentless? Hey, you may have won a victory last week, but there's more battles this week. He's going to come at you again. So what does he do? He takes Jesus, as we saw last week, to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of, kingdom of the world. He said, all these kingdoms are yours if you'll bow down and worship me. What did Jesus do? Pulls out the Machaira, the dagger. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written. Here's your offensive weapon right here. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, him only you shall serve, right? And all of a sudden, oh man. But the devil's relentless. So he comes back one last time. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, throw yourself down. The angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Let everybody see you and yay, look at, woo, look at the magic trick. Oh, oh, so awesome. What does Jesus do? He pulls out the Machaira one last time. He quotes from Deuteronomy um, chapter 6, verse 16. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not put the Lord your God to a foolish test. Right? Ah! Now, then the Bible says the devil left him. Why? Because it hurts to be stabbed over and over with the sword of the Spirit. This book hurts your enemy. This book will keep your enemy at bay. If you don't know the book, no wonder you're all beat up all the time. No wonder you're always defeated. No wonder you're always dragging around, acting like Eeyore, and, and, and complaining about everything that's going on in your life. Do you know the Machaira? Do you know the Word of God? And all three verses that Jesus used, so interesting to me, were from the book of Deuteronomy. What does that mean? That means that that morning, Jesus had his devotions in the book of Deuteronomy. And so what's the application? You and I, every day, have to have our devotions in the morning in this book. Why? Because the battles are coming that day, and if we're not in that book, we're not ready. We're not ready. And we're going to get our lunch eaten for us. This is our only offensive weapon. If you want to overcome the enemy, you've got to know this book. Look at 1 John. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. You know why they overcame the, the wicked one? The word of God abided in them. They didn't just read it once a month, once a week. The only way you and I are going to overcome the enemy is if we get to know this book. And so I want to, I do this about every two months. I want to recommend Blue Letter Bible website. It's my favorite Bible website. And if you want to get into the Word of God every single day, and you should, then you click on devotionals. That takes you to another screen and then you click on your daily Bible reading program. And what you can do is you can print out a year, read the Bible in a year, read the Bible in two years, read the Bible longer, whatever you, 
whatever plan you want to choose, you print that out. I, if I had it with me, I would show you. I've been doing this now for a long time, but I could show you pages of the scripture lined out. Scripture lined out. Scripture lined out every day, every day, every day. Why? Because I know there's battles that are going to come against me, and I had better had the sword of the Spirit up and running in my life. And so what we're going to do is that comes up. We're going to read Paul's concluding remarks to the church at Ephesus. And then some closing comments and our song, and we're done. Okay, so look at verse 18. I wish I had time, but I don't. But he says, praying, prayer is so important in spiritual warfare. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And, and, and for me, the, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am, am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. In other words, Paul is saying, Church, would you please pray for me and you know what? I speak on behalf of all the pastors here at Calvary and the elders, the staff members. And like Paul, we say, church, would you please pray for us? You see, this church is an advancing army in our community. Hundreds of lives are being changed through the ministry of this church. And the enemy would love nothing better than to take the leaders of this church whether it's the pastors, the elders, the staff members, the board of directors, he would love to chew us up and spit us out. And we covet your prayers. We don't want to mess this thing up. Please pray for us every day. Verse 21, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's all say verse 24 together. Go ahead. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. How? Put on the whole armor of God. That's how you and I should look every morning as we go to work, right there. Ready to go. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. Now in a moment we're going to sing and you'll be dismissed. As you're leaving today, the ushers are going to hand you a prayer. It's written by Dr. Charles Stanley, um, First Baptist of Atlanta. And in the prayer, it's how to put on the armor of God. So I'm gonna encourage you guys as you leave today after we sing to grab the prayer from the usher on your way out, either to our 10 minute party, uh, free coffee and donuts out on the courtyard, or visitors to the Welcome Center. Love to see you and give you that free gift before you leave today. But grab this prayer and put on the whole armor of God um, every morning by praying that prayer. Here's how we're going to end the service today. A little different than usual. 
We're gonna end the service today by together saying a prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Maybe some of you know it. When we get to the end of the Lord's Prayer, it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. You see, Jesus gave us that prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Okay, here you go. He gave us, they call it the Lord's Prayer. It's probably better called the Disciples' Prayer. He gave us a prayer. And in that prayer, he tells us we need to be asking the Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So when we get to that part, we're gonna say that with some authority, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Here we go. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.